Last week we saw the surface, as it were, what lies right on top of the text. They believe the Lord and His servant Moses. This week I want to look at the, the deeper uh, the deeper themes that are here, and especially even the language that corresponds to things in Genesis 1 relating to creation. Uh, as you can see, the, the sermon is outlined according to four, four major themes. Creation and new creation, darkness and dawn, down into Egypt and up out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh the dragon and Yahweh the dragon slayer. And all four of these things come to the fore in this text. So as we hear it again, pay attention to creation and new creation, darkness and dawn, down into Egypt, up out of Egypt, and Pharaoh the dragon, Yahweh as the dragon slayer. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took six hundred choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel as the children of Israel went out with a high hand. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth, before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall not see again forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be quiet. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. 
and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the glory of the new creation. We thank you for your, this, your son's exodus, which he accomplished at Jerusalem in our place. We praise you for this preliminary exodus by which you brought your people out of the land of death into the light of morning and towards the promised land. We pray that you would help me to speak boldly and accurately Help us all to listen to your word and take heed to what we hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Moses narrates this crossing in a way that is straightforward. When you've read the chapter, you say, I know what happened there. That made sense. But when you take a closer look, you see that the vocabulary, the words that he uses, the phrases that he uses, tie very neatly, extremely neatly, to other places in the scripture. So, for instance, the same basic structure here that we had in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So here in this chapter, we also have the waters, we have the darkness, we have the spirit or the wind, the breath of God moving on the face of the waters, and it's at that time that the children of Israel pass through, and then as they come out on the other side, the sun rises, let there be light, and there was light. The evening and the morning were the the first day, one day that these same pattern of the first creation appears very conspicuously here in Exodus 14. In other words, our forebears who saw the Red Sea crossing as an Easter story, a story of resurrection, were not wrong. In fact, they were reading what's really here in the text. Coming through the Red Sea means coming up out of the land of death into God's new creation. 
So, you know, if you run the story forward, if you run it backwards, you see the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters, God dividing the waters from the waters. You run the story forwards, and you see Christ calming the sea, trampling on the waves. Either way, at creation or in the life of Jesus, we see the same message. God rules the sea because God made the sea and God commands the sea. So Moses narrates this Red Sea crossing in terms reminiscent of the first creation. Let's look at this in more detail. Uh, First of all, this is not the first place in Exodus that we've encountered the Red Sea. If you go back to chapter 10, God gave us a little preview of the Red Sea crossing. So chapter 10, verse 13. Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. So this locust army comes in chapter 10. That's the eighth plague, of course. God brings this army up. And then how does he dispose of the army? Oh, that's right. Verse 19. The Lord turned a very strong west wind, literally sea wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. So yes, God sends the plague of locusts. God gets rid of the plague of locusts by sending them into the Red Sea. But is this foreshadowing? Could it be God can take an army and sweep it right into the Red Sea so that there's not a single survivor? If he can do it with bugs, he can do it with people. Now the Hebrew word for Red Sea is a little bit strange. The Hebrew word for sea is yam. We see that over and over. Yam. But the Red Sea is called throughout the Old Testament Yam Suf. And that's the only place where the word Suf appears. So there's, that's led to much discussion over what does this word Suf mean. Probably doesn't mean red. It sounds a lot like the Egyptian word Tuf, which means reeds. Hence the translation in some Bibles, Sea of Reeds or Reed Sea so-called supposedly from the number of papyrus reeds that grow along the bank. Others say, though, that the root of the word means the end, the sea of the end. That is the sea where you meet your end. And that's what happened to the locusts. And that's what happened to Pharaoh's army. The waters of chaos in the Yom Suf, the sea of the end, is where Pharaoh's army then the locust army meet their end. And furthermore, another connection, this time back to Genesis 1, the Spirit of God, the wind of God, blows the locusts into the sea. And just like in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. In Hebrew, the words for wind, breath, and spirit are all the same word. So we read in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. We read in Exodus 14, a wind from God moved on the face of the waters. It's essentially the same idea. The Spirit of God brooding on the vast abyss, the wind from God coming 
and dividing the waters from the waters. And then, finally, as I mentioned, let there be light, the pillar of cloud and fire, which is a light to Egypt, or a light to Israel, verse 20, darkness to Egypt. So what do we have? Well, we have God divided the waters from the waters. The Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God divided the light from the darkness, the light he called day, the darkness he called night. So that's three major movements from Genesis 1 that appear here in the story of Exodus 14. God controls the waters. God's spirit, God's wind blows on the waters and divides the waters from the waters. God says to Israel, let there be light. God says to Egypt, let there be darkness. So the God who created the heavens and the earth in the beginning by dividing the waters from the waters is the same God who leads his people out of Egypt once again by doing the same thing, dividing the waters from the waters and letting there be light. It's the ninth plague all over again. Darkness on Egypt, light on Israel. So then, furthermore, as we saw last time, the movement of the story moves from dusk to nightfall to morning light. The first 14 verses of Exodus 14 take place at nightfall. Pharaoh looms up on the horizon. They cry to God. Pharaoh gets close enough to attack, and it's at that point that the sun goes down and the pillar of cloud and fire moves in between Israel and Egypt. And then it's through the night that they cross the sea. If you've been to the beach at night, you know that as majestic as the sea is in the daytime, it's far more terrifying at night. You can see nothing. It's just this black wall of darkness with this roaring sound within it. And that's where, that's the situation that Egypt was in. Israel had light. But nonetheless, though they have light, it's still nighttime. And they have to walk through the sea in the darkness. They have the supernatural light of the pillar of fire with them. But the time when they're called on to trust God for this crossing is not broad daylight. It is nighttime. And as we know, nighttime is, well, it's scarier than daytime. It's a time when trust in God is more needed Night is the hour of faith, just as day is the hour of sight. And to cross the Red Sea at night represents, in some ways, the new birth. We are going down into the waters of chaos, passing through the sea of the end. It's like marching through death. And then coming out on the other side, right at dawn, as we talked about last week. Oh, where is that? Verse 31. Moses, verse 27. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning dawned, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. So where is Israel going? As we said, they come up out of the sea, 
as the first rays of the morning sun come up right on their faces and they continue off in that direction. Now what's significant about this direction eastward? Well, this, as we'll see later on in Exodus, this direction going east means a lot through the Pentateuch. East is the first direction mentioned in the Bible. So to go back to that account of creation, we have in Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 2, sorry, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then, of course, when Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, they are sent east of Eden. Or, yeah, verse 24 of Genesis 3. He drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, east appears there in the beginning. East is the first direction mentioned, but it doesn't go away then. Later on in Exodus... When Israel builds the tabernacle, they're instructed to pitch it a certain way every time, and that's with its back toward the east. That you come in, and as you enter the door of the tabernacle, you are facing the east, and the closer you get to the Holy of Holies and the presence of God, the further east you travel. Now, why is that? Well, it refers back to this Eden is in the east. The place of God's presence is eastward. And so you enter the tabernacle on the west side and you move further east as you penetrate deeper into the tabernacle. And that same theme appears right here. Israel is crossing the Red Sea from the African side to the Asian side. And as they do so, of course, they are traveling from the west into the east. Moving, symbolically, closer to the promised land, closer to the presence of God. So we have in our mythology here the idea of riding off into the sunset. The Hebrews thought in terms of riding off into the sunrise. Moving towards that place where the light comes from, which is the throne of God. Tabernacle is oriented that way. It's all here in the text. And yet, if you don't read carefully, you miss it. These connections between the Red Sea crossing and the first creation. So further, further sign that this is not just new creation, but it's also conceived in terms of resurrection, is the Bible's consistent use of language. To go to Egypt is always, in biblical terminology, to go down into Egypt. So here in the United States, of course, we have a particular trick of speech. We talk about going back east. The idea that everyone who is here must have come from the east originally and to return to the east is to, to go back or else to go out west and we have this sort of linguistic relic of colonization from the East Coast in which we don't talk about, I'm going East. We say, I'm going back East. I'm going out West. 
even though for many of us, we were actually born in the West and we're not going back to the East at all. We might be going to the East for the first time. Doesn't matter. Just as the relative heights above sea level of Egypt and Israel are not at issue here. Rather, throughout the Bible, and especially throughout the Pentateuch, Egypt is always conceived of as down. So the first time Egypt is mentioned, Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Already, the first time we see Egypt, Egypt is down, right? Just like the underworld. Just like Sheol, Egypt is the land of the dead, which is referenced here in Exodus 14. Were there no graves in Egypt? We talked about that last time. The most famous thing in Egypt is a grave, the Great Pyramid of Giza. There are tombs in Egypt. There are embalmers in Egypt. Egypt is the land of the experts on death. And here they are coming up out of Egypt. So Exodus 13, 18, it's mentioned there, for instance. God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt. Not the children of Israel went out of the land of Egypt, but went up out of the land of Egypt. Again, these details are small. If you aren't paying careful attention, you miss them. But they are incredibly relevant because going down is like ultimately going down into hell. Going up is like going up into heaven. Going down is like going down into the grave. Going up Coming up is like coming out of the grave. It is ultimately a reference to resurrection. And hence Jesus speaking of his exodus, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. That's Luke's way of referring to all of this. Moving out of darkness into light. Moving out of death into life. That is what happened at the exodus. In other words, since Moses is portraying this in terms of the first creation, since Moses is portraying this in terms of an exit from the underworld, we need to understand Exodus 14 as not just being about the Red Sea crossing, but as plugging into the greater themes of resurrection and new creation. That's the issues. That's what's at stake in this chapter. God didn't just take his people from the Africa side to the Asia side of the Red Sea. God brought his people out of the land of death into the land of new life. That's what's going on here. So finally, Pharaoh is portrayed later in the Old Testament as a dragon, just like Satan in the New Testament. So turn over to Ezekiel 29. This portrait is pretty interesting. (coughs) Ezekiel 29. Starting at verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say... 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a great dragon who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My Nile is my own. I have made it for myself. So there's the language of creation. Pharaoh claiming to be the creator, the one who made the Nile. But I will put my hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. And I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Hmm, Where have we heard that before? Because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins shake. So God portrays Pharaoh as this sea dragon lying in the Nile. And God says, I will hook you, I'll pull you out of the Nile, and I'll throw you out into the desert. And you, Pharaoh, will be that beached whale rotting there, and all the vultures and everything else will come and nibble you down to nothing. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God also portrays himself as a dragon slayer in Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27.1, which says this, In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So we have the first creation. We have God dividing the waters from the waters. We have the darkness. We have the light. We have the movement east back toward Eden. And now we have God as the dragon slayer slaughtering Pharaoh the dragon. Now Ezekiel, of course, wrote seven, eight hundred years after the Exodus. So he's threatening again what God already did back in Exodus 14, which is to slaughter Pharaoh's army, to sweep it into the Red Sea. God shook off or overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, Exodus 14, 27. God throws Egypt into the sea and drowns them just as he takes Pharaoh, the sea dragon, and throws him into the desert and bakes him. God wins. And when he does, when he vanquishes the devil, the dragon... God's people are free to travel on to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, to meet with God. So as we see God's people crossing through the Red Sea, from death to life, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from Pharaoh's, the place where Pharaoh rules to the place where Yahweh rules, It's clearly a picture to us of salvation, of resurrection, of new creation, of coming from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. What does that tell us? Well, we don't need to fear Pharaoh or the other empires of this world. The ones we've seen in Sunday school portrayed as beasts, including, up to and including, the sea dragon. 
God rules those empires, and he can and does lead his people through the darkness of death into the light of morning, the morning of that eternal Sabbath rest. Christ walked that path through death and out the other side. He descended through the waters of death, and he came up out on the other side right at dawn on the morning of the third day. So he did it in our text as the pillar of cloud and fire. The Son of God going before his people as fire within the cloud, passing through the waters of chaos and coming out on the other side. He did it again at the cross where he truly descended to the dead and then came up again on the other side. And now, this is the tough part, it's our call to follow him. Jesus, at some point, is going to have most of us die. But even long before that, as we saw in Luke chapter 9, what does he say? Take up your cross daily and follow me. It is that little crucifixion every day is part of the Christian life. Dying to the things you wanted to do dying to your own righteousness, dying to submitting to sin as a false master, you no longer do any of that. Because you're following Christ who went down into death and rose again into new life. And because we are new creations, we need to imitate Him and live as those new creations. Right? No longer are we in Egypt saying, Oh! Pharaoh's going to get me. I have to sin this sin or my body, my master, my flesh won't be happy. No, you're on the other side. You're in the territory of Sinai now. You're in the desert with God. He rules and you can obey him. So what did the Israelites say when they saw Pharaoh coming? Saw the dust of his chariots? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They believed the lie of the sea dragon or of the regular dragon. And the devil tells us that same lie today. Oh, you would have been better off serving sin. This is hard to obey God right now. Go back and serve sin. Sin is better. With sin, you live. Or at least you get a decent burial. God's people said that. So don't be that way, right? Don't be ready to turn yourself into the Egyptians. Rather say, no, I would rather die in the service of Jesus than live in the service of Pharaoh the dragon. I will not go turn myself into Pharaoh even if that means I have to cross through the waters of death. A little death, a symbolic death like this one, just walking through the sea at night, or a real death, should God call you to that, and he will call all of us to that at some point, most likely. And when that time comes, don't believe the dragon. It's not better to slave in Egypt. It's better to serve the one who walked through the waters of death 
and lives. So Jude says Jesus saved his people out of Egypt. And he did. It's the Son of God and the pillar of cloud and fire who led God's people through this, who divided the waters from the waters, who said, let there be light, and there was light, who killed the sea dragon by sweeping Pharaoh's chariot army into the sea. God is saving us from sin through resurrection and through new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You didn't literally walk through the Red Sea, but you did come through the waters of baptism. The Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You were baptized into Christ in the waters of baptism. So you've been brought out of darkness into light. You no longer have to believe the lies of the dragon. You have the truth of God's word. You've been brought out of the waters of chaos onto the solid rock of the mountain of God. That's the path that God's people take here in Exodus, and that's the path that we as God's people take today. We're rescued from the dominion of sin. We're brought into the light of the new creation, free to serve Jesus. So do it. That's your encouragement for this week. It feels like dying to do the right thing. Or if it actually is dying to do the right thing. Jesus already did it. And he lives. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the little textual clues you put here about dividing the waters from the waters and saying, let there be light and killing the sea dragon and bringing your people up out of Egypt into new life at the mountain of God. Lord, we thank you that Jesus was dead and is alive forevermore. We pray that you would help us to live as those who are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. We ask it from the bottom of our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.